Welcome to Call and Character, a podcast for not-so-casual conversation about calling, culture, and other things that make for lives worth living. My name is Davey Henriksen, and I teach at Valparaiso University and serve as director of the Institute for Leadership and Service, the sponsor of this podcast. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Abram Van Engen, a professor at Washington University in St. Louis and host of the wonderful podcast, Poetry for All. We'll be discussing his new book on American nationalism and exceptionalism from the colonial Puritans up to the present day. One more quick note. On Thursday, October 22nd, former podcast guest Francis Sue will be delivering a virtual lecture on his book, Mathematics for Human Flourishing, from Valparaiso University. Since the talk is virtual, all are welcome to attend. Check out the Facebook page and Instagram for the Institute for Leadership and Service to find out more and register for the event. And now, to the conversation. It seems every political community has a golden age, an era, real or imagined, when leaders were all virtuous, the people were all happy, and national prominence was obvious to the watching world. In the American context, the idea that our political order is somehow exceptional, the best there ever was, has a fascinating history. America, in its origins, was supposed to have a distinctive calling and purpose that set it apart. It was, to borrow the words of Jesus and the Puritan John Winthrop, a city on a hill to whom the eyes of all nations turned. Our guest today, Abram Van Engen, investigates the history of the idea of American exceptionalism, looking at its cultural and even theological origins, as well as the ways in which the idea has been picked up and transformed in contemporary politics. He also raises questions about the ways that the underside of the American experiment, the displacement of indigenous peoples, and the enslavement of African men and women, is forgotten in many tellings of the national myth. Dr. Van Engen is Associate Professor of English at Washington University in St. Louis and an affiliate faculty member in the Danforth Center on Religion and Politics. His new book, City on a Hill, A History of American Exceptionalism, was published by Yale University Press earlier this year. So Abram, welcome to the podcast. So Abram, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So America's historical legacy is obviously quite uh, political charge these days. We're recording this episode the day after Columbus Day, also known as Indigenous Peoples Day. And over the weekend, the White House uh, released a proclamation in honor of Christopher Columbus that included this really striking line. Uh, it say, quote, we inherit that optimism along with the legacy of American heroes who blazed the trails, settled the continent, tamed the wilderness, and built the single greatest nation the world has ever seen, unquote. So first, I want to ask you, where does this attitude toward America's exceptionalism come from? And second, has it always been like this? Good question. Um, so what you're reading there, that, that sort of honorific uh, line about Christopher Columbus, you could tra trace that sentiment uh, directly back to the nation's first history textbooks which really tried to establish an exceptional history of the nation. In, and, and there was a sort of boom of these history textbooks in the 1820s. And if you think about what's happening in the 1820s, why are these history textbooks coming out at that moment? Uh, a couple of things. One is 
first of all, a lot more people are going to school because of state laws that require them to go to school. And second of all, there's all these memories, uh, 50th year an- anniversaries of, uh, of the American Revolution, 200th year anniversary of Pilgrim Landing. So all these commemorations are happening and people are starting to say, if we're going to be a nation, we need a national history. Uh, and so they start to write these histories of the nation that turn the nation into this exceptional, extreme example uh, of everything that is basically right and good in the world. So they set themselves up as a model for every other nation. And really, in a certain sense, they're building off of an attitude that that sort of um, evolved out of the American Revolution itself. So right after the American Revolution, even during the American Revolution, you have a bunch of clergymen sort of sanctifying the cause um, as as basically God's cause and as the great sort of next moment of sacred history was unfolding right before them. Uh, and so between those two moments, this attitude has been with the nation since the nation was a nation uh, and the American Revolution. So America is is obviously not the only nation that has conceived of itself as somehow special. And, and there's there's forms and varieties of nationalism across the globe, uh, both at present and historically as well. But there seems to be a, a rather unique uh, and interesting twist to the American context and the American species of exceptionalism. Since so many of the original settlers, European settlers, connected American history with the biblical history of Israel, God's chosen people in the Hebrew Bible. So what is the the nature of the connection between, at least in their own minds, the American founders and settlers and biblical Israel? And what does it say about how Americans even now conceive of their national identity? Yeah. So one thing to point out, and this is a thing I try to get at in my book, um, when the Puritans are using that language of, of Israel and the Israelites, and they're comparing themselves to um, God's chosen people in the Bible, at that moment when they're doing that in the 1600s, they're not thinking in terms of American exceptionalism. They're not necessarily setting themselves apart from everyone else in the world. In fact, what they're trying to do, do is build a worldwide reformation uh, and, and, and really connect to an international uh, movement of reform. Uh, and so they're they're basically seeing themselves first and foremost as Christians and not first and foremost as Americans, which really didn't even make sense to them. Um, what happens during the American Revolution is that language, which is uh, prevalent and able to be sort of recirculated and reused, becomes a kind of language of American exceptions so that Americans in particular become the new Israelites. And America is quite explicitly referred to as the new Israel, as the model people, as the God's chosen ones uh, to lead the way into, you know, the next uh, revelation of divine history. Uh, This sort of language comes out of the American Revolution, and they, in a certain sense, adopt the Puritans and the Pilgrims into that history even though the Puritans and Pilgrims weren't thinking that way themselves. <laughs> so a lot of people trace this back to the Puritans, but it's actually, um, a, it actually arises out of the way that they got um, remade during the American Revolution. But that language has gone forward with us uh, really from those days and from those pulpits of the American Revolution uh, to think of America as a chosen land, as, as God's uh, special revelation to the world. And this sort of merger of church and nation has been with us uh, since the beginning of the United States. 
the language of, of being a chosen nation, being a sort of elect people in the original Puritan context, was that always necessarily something you wanted? <laughs> like, in other words, to like to talk about this new uh, Puritan founding here in, in the American colonies as as if it were a city on a hill where all the nations are looking to you as an example. Is yeah. that a place you want to be? Or is there, is there a sort of implicit <laughs> warning about being in front of uh, an international audience like that? Yeah, I mean, when it shows up in Winthrop's sermon near the end of his sermon, uh, he's very clear that this is uh, both a warning and an aspiration. On the one hand, it would be lovely to be a model of Christian charity, which is the title of this sermon that we have. Um, on the other hand, it means that uh, you better not fail. <laughs> and 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 Winthrop, when he uses that line, is very concerned about failure. He most of the other folks who had come here from Europe had already failed in various settlements. Um, and he's very concerned that this one will too. Uh, and so he's teetering right on the edge of, of hope and fear uh, as, as that line appears near the end of his sermon. And he's mostly concerned about how to build up a community of people that will love one another and not seek their own ends at, at, at other people's expenses. Uh, and so that's where this language is drawn in. It's really a moral call uh, to be better <laughs> uh, with, a, with an inbuilt fear that they won't. So this, this dialectic of hope and fear, it seems to run, this is something perhaps that's also shared in some of the biblical literature that's being drawn upon in early American literature. And it's tied up with a genre that, that you and other scholars discuss as uh, something called the Jeremiah. The Jeremiah is the name itself at least derives from the long impassioned speeches that uh, the Hebrew prophets, specifically the prophet Jeremiah, used to deliver against uh, the people of Israel and sometimes the surrounding nations around Israel uh, when they abandoned their God, Yahweh, and traditional religious practices. So I want to ask you a little bit more about this genre of the Jeremiah and how it plays out in some of the early conceptions of self-identity in America. What What is the Jeremiah and what makes it unique as a type of speech or sermon or, or political diatribe? And how has this genre been used in American history? Yeah. So the, the Jeremiah is a, is a form of sermon that basically says uh, there once was a golden age or a time when our people were better than they are now. We have since declined from that moment and we're at a crossroads. We're at a moment when we can decide whether we're going to fall away uh, further uh, and to a point where we will be inevitably punished for, for how far we have fallen away. Or at this moment, we can turn and return uh, to the calling that first sort of defined us and defined our, our forebearers. Um, that's the sort of political version of something that's deeply religious, uh, which is this sense of uh, a moment to call uh, people away from their sins, uh, to return to God. Um, the way that this gets particularly Americanized is that, and, and Sackvin Berkovich has this book called The American Jeremiah, where he lays this out quite well. Uh, what he says in that book and what he, what he shows is that in the American context, what happens is an American ideal always gets up and, uh, held up against the American reality. Uh, and so we say, well, Americans are called to all these good things, uh, equality, liberty, uh, you name it, prosperity. Uh, and yet we, we fail uh, to do those things. When we fail to do those things, what that means is we're not really being American. Uh, which is kind of crazy if you think about it, right? So, for example, um, when we had the incident with the cages on the border and, and children in cages on the border, 
Um, I saw headlines that said this was so un-American of Trump and, and so un-American, uh, um, such an un-American thing to do, which is a weird way to think about it when the president who's elected by the American people is doing it. So, so what, at what point does something become American or un-American? And we use that language of American or un-American really just to talk about our values. Things that we love, we call American. Things that we hate, we call un-American. But why should that be the standard uh, instead, of the, instead of the standard being what Americans are actually and really doing in the world? Uh, and, and what Sackvin Berkovich was pointing out is that sort of rhetoric is always holding up an American ideal against the American reality and saying that the American ideal is really what we are all about, uh, even though the way that we live is is always falling short of that. Now, what Berkovich did uh, that I think was was badly mistaken is that he traced this back to the Puritans, and he basically said the Puritans gave us this rhetoric and has been with us ever since. I think that's 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 actually not true. Um, and I think it, it comes more out of the American Revolution and the pulpits of that era than it comes out of the uh, out of Puritanism. Um, but that's a that's part of what I talk about in my book is how the Puritans get get turned into this story of of sacralizing the nation. So there's a, a, a transformation or a turn in the rhetoric and and the and the way in which the Jeremiah is being used between the Puritans and say like mm-hmm. the 17th century up through the Revolution, the 18th. How does that idea of you know a mythic American founding, the idea of our nation being a, a city on a hill, how does that continue to develop throughout American history up to the present? Well, as I point out in my book, I mean it's what's really at stake here is the way that we tell origin stories of the nation. Uh, and the way that we really invent them. John Winthrop's City on a Hill sermon was not known in its own day. It wasn't printed. It wasn't noted. It didn't appear in any diaries. Winthrop himself did not say when he gave it. Uh, And in all the biographies of Winthrop that come out of that era, I mean, and there are many, uh, it's never mentioned. Nobody ever says Winthrop gave this speech or this sermon. Uh, In fact, the first time anyone even knows about this sermon is 200 years later in 1838 when they find it in an archive and say, hey, this looks important. Maybe we should publish this. So an archive publishes it. The Massachusetts Historical Society publishes it. uh, And then it's ignored again. Nobody really pays attention to it until Perry Miller gets a hold of it uh, in the context of World War II and the Cold War. And gradually it gets turned into this founding statement of... um, how America really began and what America really stands for. But that didn't really happen until the Cold War. So even if you trace all the language of America as a city on a hill, it basically does not exist before the Cold War. City on a hill was a biblical phrase that referred to the church primarily before the Cold War. And now when you look it up, it it, it refers primarily to the nation over and over and over again. So you are a historian by trade, not a psychologist, but if I were to ask you to put America on the couch, so to speak, yeah. why, why was the Cold War context, the situation, the milieu in which this idea became popular once again, or perhaps popular for the first time? A lot of the American exceptionalism that we have today is the remnant of the Cold War. Um, it's it's a an attempt to build a binary opposition uh, to communist Soviet Union. Uh, so as they are officially atheists, we are officially religious of some sort. Um, and so that's where a lot of um, actually the rem- what we have now of Christian nationalism, uh, a lot of the force of it comes out of the 1950s context. So that's when they add under God uh, to the Pledge of Allegiance and so on. Um, that's a moment when they're saying we are a godly nation against an ungodly foe. 
Uh, it's also a moment when the military becomes a big part of American exceptionalism. If you think about it, that was never part of American exceptionalism in the 19th century because our military was so weak compared to every other nation in the world. Uh, you know, the British were the big powerhouse uh, of the 1800s. And so Americans claimed moral high ground in the 1800s, but they never claimed that, um, you know, our job was to lead the world militarily or economically. Uh, so these things got added to American exceptionalism really during the Cold War. So let's bring it all the way up then to the present day. Uh, much of your work, uh, and of course the majority of this book itself is historical. It's not dealing with contemporary questions or concerns about American national identity. But that said, you do dig into the past to understand how certain ideas and national attitudes came into existence. And I also sense there, there's something of a normative edge to your project. At least, it, I think it's it, maybe it's impossible to write about American exceptionalism <laughs> in a vacuum during yeah. an age and in a month prior to an election when folks are talking about making America great again. So I want to ask you, do, do you see your historical work teaching us something important about the present? And does it carry not just a historical lesson, but a moral warning about how not to think of national identity. Mm -hmm. Yes, I, I see my project normatively engaged in two different spheres at once. Um, the sphere that in a certain sense is closest to my heart is the sphere of the church and what this has to say to the church or about the church. Um, it, it worries me when the language of the church and the language of the gospels is reappropriated for a nation and when a nation comes to signify the power of the church, uh, that, that the nation would be the savior of the world in, in effect. Um, that sort of language really worries me. And you could see it happening early on. Though what's interesting is in the 1800s, a lot of times, especially with the particular language of City on a Hill, the church is set up over and against what America is doing as a nation. Uh, whereas more and more in the 20th century, America becomes the, the sort of principal agent of salvation to the world. And that's basically, I think, to take a sense of devotion that belongs only to the church and give it to the nation. Uh, and that, I think, is highly dangerous, both for the church and for the nation. Uh, so there is that normative edge to it. What's interesting when I think politically about American exceptionalism is um, when I started this project, that was before the, the coming back of America um, America First. You know, America First had a, a heyday under Lindbergh in, in World War II, but really it disappeared during all of the Cold War until basically Trump again. Uh, and when I was teaching this class and working on this book, it really wasn't around. And so most people thought of American exceptionalism in terms of overreach, overconfidence, arrogance, the way that it leads to wars abroad, the way that it covers up American misdeeds and so on. And so there was a really a sense of all the dangers of American exceptionalism. And, and that was part of what I was highlighting in this book. Then along comes America first. And lo and behold, we have this completely different rhetoric, which actually highlights some of the benefits of American exceptionalism in a weird way. So if American exceptionalism is largely wrong or misguided, at least what it did is said there are certain values we ought to be striving for values like freedom, uh, values like thinking of ourselves as an asylum to the nations, values like uh, welcoming refugees and immigrants and thinking of that as our historic character. Um, and all of that gets ditched with the isolationism of uh, America first. 
And that replaces all the old rhetoric of standing up for certain moral ideals with basically saying what makes a nation great is uh, the best airports or the most money, or it's, it's very unclear. It's a sort of materialistic account of what makes the nation the best. Um, and it treats every other nation as a competitor merely. Uh, and it ditches history entirely. And it does all kinds of other things that are really the opposite of American exceptionalism and which begin to show that for all of its moral blind spots, at least American exceptionalism held out ideals that are worth striving for. And what's interesting is during this moment, you can actually see a lot of folks on the left begin to embrace forms of American exceptionalism because they realize that these um, these values uh, had been lost in the rhetoric of America first. So that's a long-winded answer to the question, but uh, it gets at um, thinking about what we how do we strive for things that we ought to strive for without being blind to the ways that we fail to achieve them? That's really striking to me. It seems then we have, we have these two varieties, one that you call American exceptionalism and one America first. They both, though, have the effect of eliding or writing out of the history the underside of the American experiment. So things like the displacement of indigenous peoples, uh, the, the you know racial chattel system of slavery, both want to tell a story about America and its origins that is either pristine in a sort of idealistic version under American exceptionalism, or maybe a, a crass, more materialistic version with uh, a, with America first, but what exactly is being lost? How do both narratives are they are they getting at the truth? Or are they missing something very important about the national identity by leaving out some of the darker details? Yeah, I mean, again, it goes back to origin stories and why we choose certain origin stories uh, at the exclusion of others. I mean, if you think about um, so, a lot of the book is about why why so many national histories for so long started with Pilgrim Landing in 1620. It doesn't really make any sense. They're not the first people here. They're not the first Europeans here. They're not the first English people here. They're not the first English settlement here. There, there's no <laughs> there's nothing first about the Pilgrims, uh, except that when they get stated as the first, when it gets uh, stated that they are the the, the sort of first Americans. Um, then basically everything that came before can be erased and you can make them stand for whatever you want them to stand for. And so a lot of these histories move, for example, straight from the Mayflower Compact to the, to the U.S. Constitution. Uh, and they say that they're the first because that's the precursor of the Constitution. Um, but it's also a way then to, to not start with Jamestown, to not start with the enslavement of Africans, uh, and basically to say that slavery is um, a blight on America, but not really part of the American character. Uh, you know, if, if America is whatever the pilgrims gave us, then slavery, uh, which gets written out of New England also, is basically an error, uh, but, not, but not central to who we are. And that allows you to write a story of a people where where you can more or less ignore slavery and ignore its legacies and ignore its impact and ignore just how widespread it was all over from north to south. And the same thing happens with Native Americans. I mean, you, you, these histories, it's hard to write a story of American exceptionalism that begins with the displacement of Native Americans. It's very hard. It's very hard to maintain exceptionalism without an exceptional origin. And so, I mean, one of the characters I trace in my book, this guy named Jeremy Belknap, he began uh, wanting to be a missionary. And by the end of his life, he's, he's such a proponent of American exceptionalism. He's the founder of the Massachusetts Historical Society. 
that he basically says Native American people need to disappear. They need to go away. They're just like too big a problem for him and the story he wants to tell of America that he basically himself needs to write them out of the story for the story to stick. So the fascination with origin stories, it, it seems to be endemic to, to everyone on both sides. You, you have this fascination with how things came to be. Anytime you reboot Batman, you have to tell how Bruce Wayne's parents were killed right. in the streets. And every time you have to tell the, the origin of America, you have to find some, some genesis that explains something about who we are as a people even now. And of course, American exceptionalism advances one. We have the recent um, example of the 1619 Project, which is trying to tell uh, the story of America from a, a very different perspective from the margins. Mm-hmm. But I'm curious uh, uh, more just about this, this, uh, this attraction to origin stories in themselves. Why do you think we are attracted to them? And are they always misleading because they're dealing with the sort of mythical origins of a people or a nation and intentionally telling a certain version of the story, leaving other details out? In other words, can there be a sort of benign or even um, helpful origin story or are they all suspect? Yeah, I, I think when the goal is to explain a people, especially a nation, then they are going to be typically misleading because they are going to try to do too much with too little. I think the fascination with origin stories has to do with the fact that when we tell history, we do tell stories. Uh, and stories have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And so it, it forces the question, where does it begin? If you want to tell the history of America, where do you begin? You've got to begin somewhere. Uh, and where you begin is already tracing out uh, a great deal of the conception that you have of America. Um, do you begin in the Bering Strait? Um, where do you begin with 1619, 1620, 1607? Do you begin with the Spanish who were here much earlier than all of that? Um, the place where you begin already sort of tells you what you think America is and stands for, if it is a history of America. Um, I think that the best approach is basically to say that all of these origins contribute something uh, to who we are as as Uh, an American people, Uh, that you can't tell a history of America without recognizing the fact that the origins are multiple. Um, But to tell a story with multiple origins is very difficult to do. Uh, It's a lot easier to say that at this moment, this thing happened, and from that moment forward, uh, we have America. But anytime you do that, uh, mostly what you're doing is simply telling us what you think America is. You're not actually giving us a history of America. So, my training is in moral philosophy, and moral philosophers like to talk about this idea of natural loves or preferential loves for those who are closest to us. And there's a big debate about whether those are legitimate or not. But it does seem to be the case that human beings typically tend to love that which is close to them, whether that's mm-hmm. family members or, in this case, a people or a nation. So I want to ask you a more, again, a more normative question about the very possibility or legitimacy of patriotism or love of country, because mm-hmm. it seems like, at least in, in its in its best version, American exceptionalism is just trying to provide reasons or a justification even for why American citizens have love for or respect their country and its history and its best values, the best version of itself. Do you think that there are historical lessons about how it might be appropriate to love one's country without falling into idolatry or trying to discuss the history as if it were impeccable or without fault? Mm -hmm. 
Yes. Um, you know, when I teach a class on American exceptionalism, I play word association games. So one day I'll start and say, tell me everything that comes to mind when you hear the word patriotism uh, and teaching where I teach a, a series of negative verbs and words come up first, um, bigotry and so on and so forth. And then some student will say love and some student will say sacrifice and some student will say soldiers and flag and all sorts of things. Uh, you know, for me, when I think about it, patriotism, I try to divide that and make a strong distinction between patriotism and nationalism. I don't think that there's a good version of nationalism. I think nationalism is always bad in any form. Um, I think patriotism makes sense in, in the way that, precisely as you're saying, we are loyal to and have certain uh, circles of love that extend out from us. So, it makes sense to me that we love our near family uh, more than uh, strangers um, and that we might be more loyal to our family members than to strangers. Now, there could be ethical problems with that um, and it can lead to ethical problems for sure, but that makes sense. And if you extend that out, then there are these circles of, in a certain sense, kinship or affiliation or association that it makes sense to care about um, more intensely. And, uh, and patriotism, I see, is, is a certain sense uh, extending that. Um, now, where I think it, it succeeds is in that sort of more progressive sense of American exceptionalism, which is that we are called to certain values we have never yet achieved. Uh, I think the form of American exceptionalism that says we have achieved these values and therefore everyone look to us or we will bring them to you uh, tends to be um, blind from the beginning uh, to what has gone wrong. But there is a form of Amer American exceptionalism that says um, we have certain values that we stand for as a nation written into certain um, statements that we have made that we hold dear and we have never yet achieved these things. And we need to be aimed towards these things and working towards these things day by day and more by more. Um, and so I think that's a form of patriotism. Um, and um, and I, I think that in a certain sense, that's a good thing. It sounds to me almost like the original Jeremiah or <laughs> it went from yeah. the original sermon, which did have, like you said, the dialectic of fear and hope, aspiration, and also perspective judgment, right? Yes, and, and I think for Christians, where it come, becomes tricky is separating those values that you might have for a nation from the values you might have for a church um, or for, for other things. So I do think um, that a nation has different goals than the church does, and that it becomes tricky when those goals get blended together, and it becomes easy to blend those goals together and, in a certain sense, worship the church. So I do think that patriotism or worship the nation. I do think that patriotism has a tendency to slide into nationalism pretty quickly, and which is what makes it uh, dangerous. Um, but I think going in with your eyes wide open about the, the failures of the nation, but also the high standards that a nation might have uh, based out of its own history um, can be quite useful. So I'd like to, to wrap up conversations here by inviting our guests to share some exemplars of scholars or activists or thinkers or practitioners who demonstrate some of the virtues of their craft or their profession. So I want to ask you, if knowing that our history is important to understanding present concerns over things like American exceptionalism or national self-identity or the dangers of excessive patriotism, who are some other people 
that we should be reading or listening to if we want to learn more about this phenomenon? Yeah. Well, I mean, my answers will not surprise anyone. I mean, I do think that, for example, Mark Knoll is an, a, a good example of a, a Christian historian who is able to separate a sort of historical view of the nation uh, from the values that that he holds as a Christian um, and is able to say, is able to talk about nation's failures and nation's successes in a much more, without it being a reflection on, um, on faith or on uh, his own commitments and so on. I think Mark Knoll is a good example. I do also think that uh, it's important to figure out where our normatives are coming from and why we often attribute them to the nation. So if we think that, for example, the founders set the norms that we need to achieve, um, on the one hand, that can be good. It can call us to certain things that we have yet to achieve. On the other hand, what what was so divine about the founders um, that they got everything right in a certain specific moment and all we have to do is live up to them? <laughs> it, it strikes me that... Uh, our norms might be non-national at all, and that we can read those folks who are asking us to think about where our norms come from, uh, why we have them, and which ones are appropriate to a nation. Um, I asked my students to write this sort of impossible essay. Uh, it's always fun to read their answers, but basically I asked them to say, what is the purpose of this nation, the United States? What is its purpose? Does it have a purpose? Is its purpose different than other nations? Uh, so they, they have to talk to me about national purpose, which gets them to think about what is, a, what is the purpose of a nation? And is it distinct from the purposes of other kinds of association um, that we might have? So I think it's worth thinking about that kind of question, as we, uh, which, is, which is, I think, deeply related to the way we tell histories of our nation, which are often shot through with where these purposes come from or whether or not we are achieving them. Great. So I do want to thank you again for coming on today. And I also wanted to invite you, Abram, as a, as a fellow podcaster, if you wanted to, to plug your own podcast here at the <laughs> end for our listeners. We always need yeah. more podcast content. So I, I'm actually, uh, so I have a pod podcast called Poetry for All, which you can find at poetryforall.fireside.fm. I'm actually uh, in an English department with literary studies as my background and training, though I do mostly historical work when I write books. So in the other hat that I wear, I talk a lot about poetry and how great it is. Uh, and it's just a podcast, 15-minute uh, episodes each week on one great poem and how it works each week. That's great. Well, we'll have to uh, have you over again and do a crossover podcast at some point. Great. So thank you again. I, I would encourage your listeners to check out uh, Abram's book, also his podcast. And thanks once again, Abram, for coming on the show today. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Call in Character, a podcast from the Institute for Leadership and Service at Valparaiso University. If you have any feedback or questions, follow us on the Institute's Facebook page or send an email to lead.serve at valpo.edu. Our production team includes Aaron Morrison and Kim Neiman. Please subscribe to Calling Character on iTunes, Spotify, and other places podcasts are found, and leave us a comment and a rating. Until next time. <laughs>